Do you believe in fate, Neil? No. Why not? Because I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my life. Some say it is a contradiction to believe both in prophecy and simultaneously in free will, for they can't really coexist. Because if anything a time traveler does in the past might dramatically alter the present, then anything done in the present could also change the future into something no prophet or fortune teller could foresee. We can examine events of the past because the past is set and cannot be changed. The only way we could ever see into the future would be if it too were set and couldn't be changed either. Everything is fixed and you can't change it! But some religions believe that everything that ever happens and everything we think we've decided to do is controlled by the fates, as if we were merely characters in an old movie where someone already knows how it ends. I've never seen anything to make me believe there's one all-powerful force controlling everything. There's no mystical energy field controls my destiny. Imagine you've misplaced your keys and you're running late for work trying to find them. The phone rings at a time when you would normally have been gone already. It happens to be a radio station running a promotional contest where you'll win a prize if you can answer one obscure question, but oddly enough, the subject of that question happens to be something you learned all about from one of your friends just yesterday. So you win a dream vacation where you just happen to meet a wonderful person who just happens to fall in love with you and changes the course of the rest of your life. Maybe that was just a lucky break, something that can only happen once in a lifetime to one person in a million. But most theists would readily say that God wanted that to happen, and so he arranged for all these lesser events to lead up to that. Call it fate, call it luck, call it karma. I believe that everything happens for a reason. They'll tell you that if your brother struck out in baseball and your daughter has an obsessive compulsive disorder and your son suffers from a chronic and potentially deadly affliction, that's all part of God's unified plan. If young children lose their mother in a tragic accident which leaves others traumatized for life, then God wanted that to happen too. No matter what happens or how it happens, God did it and only God knows why. It's like it was meant to be. There are no accidents. Because accident implies there's nobody to blame. They never tell you how God arranges these things either. Such orchestration is impossible in our reality. That's one of many reasons why God and science are wholly separate topics which do not overlap. Yet creationists do say how God could not have done it. Creationists differ from mainstream Christians in that they impose limits on their God, insisting that the one element of nature which God cannot control is evolution. Their black or white perspective only permits one of two extremes. Either God cannot use natural processes creatively, or naturally creative systems cannot be governed by God, and thus somehow count as evidence against God. What matters is that whatever happened, happened for a reason. Creation is 100% scientific proof there was a creator. You cannot have a creation without a creator. They think that scientists believe simple elements just accidentally fell together in extremely complex working configurations and it would be in a, a, a leap of faith far beyond believing in Jesus or Buddha or Allah to think that it just accidentally got that way. Creationists say evolution is random, but evolutionists do not say that regardless whether they believe in a god or not. Sometimes it's hard for a human being to study the ear or study the eye and think that happened by accident. I beg your pardon, did you say by accident? Yeah. What do you mean by accident? That the eye just formed itself somehow. And who says it did? Well, some evolutionists say it. Not a single one that I've ever met. Really? Really. Evolution does depend on mutations, and these do appear to be random. But each cumulative mutation may become significant factors for that organism once pitted against the dynamics of the environment in which they are introduced. Thus, natural selection isn't random, it's deterministic. 
Many creationists will even admit this, and as some computer models have already shown, natural selection can actually even exceed the skills of human designers. In fact, natural selection can be so deterministic that it often leads to innovations which some perceive as evidence of intelligent design and which even rationalists describe as though modified for intended benefit. Whether it is deliberately guided or not, there is definitely a system of design, but there doesn't actually have to be any apparent intent or intelligence involved. Because while our normal intuition might be to imagine one governing body issuing authority from the top down, a new field of science, the study of emergent complexity, uses computers to trace numerous patterns in nature which are all emergent from the bottom up, being controlled or constructed by an intricate interrelated array of the lowest components working together in unison, each according to a set of relatively simple rules based in a world that is built on rules. Emergence is a new study revealing many ways in which order can come from disorder and how chaos can also achieve balance, illustrating how even the origin of life is as much chemical as it is mathematic. Your life is the sum of a remainder of an unbalanced equation inherent to the programming of the matrix. Regardless what field or subject we're talking about, anything that is regularly analyzed or revised naturally tends to become more complex as those processes wear on, and we know that environmental pressures on population genetics is no exception. Even before computers existed, we already knew that natural selection can, and often will, produce results which look like trial and error experiments, including elements of seemingly intentional fine-tuning. But for all the implications of apparent design, there is never any indication of any intended goal or final product, nor any hint of infallibility on the part of the designer. In fact, so many errors of so many types are known that even if there was an unnatural architect using miraculous means instead of natural ones, then it seems that entity must either be blind and barely competent, or there are whole teams of designers working on separate lines competing against each other. Natural selection even mimics the experiments of human designers when new technologies emerge. For example, when men first achieved powered flight, there were myriad marvelously imaginative contraptions all at once collectively trying to set the standard for what airplanes should be. Eventually, they followed a more standardized pattern as many of the fancier designs were discontinued and more functional tried-and-true contributions remained. Significant improvements occasionally appear, but there are no more wildly diverse variants like the pioneer planes built when aviation was new and less understood. The same sort of thing occurred when life moved up to the multicellular level in the late Vendian era some 600 million years ago. Contrary to the claims of creationists, we do have evidence both in trace fossils and in the genome, as well as the complete fossils of Precambrian precursors of later orders. The first multicellular animals had no skeletons or organs or sensory systems of any kind. Once primitive drafts of these began to develop, then over the course of the next 160 million years, the oceans went from being basically a sea of sponges and plankton to a virtual explosion of new forms even more dramatic than when they made the move onto land some 70 million years or so later. There were more phyla to emerge in that era than we have left today. Many of the earlier ones were so bizarre we can't even make sense of them. They're so alien to anything still around. Then, as with early designs of airplanes and automobiles, once other possibilities were explored, the more functional lines continued to diversify and less practical derivations of the early days thinned into extinction. In any environmental niche, there is a perfect shape, one especially efficient form which, once obtained, need not be substantially modified until the environment changes or the animal moves on to new circumstances. For example, the shape and job of the crocodile has been used by several extinct predecessors, including ancient amphibians and the precursors of whales. The shark shape has also been employed by bony fish as well as ichthyosaurs and by dolphins and even by a Mesozoic crocodile who moved on to the open ocean. And the role of lion has been played by everything from fossil marsupials to dinosaurs and giant half-mammalian reptiles who lived before the dinosaurs. So some styles can be preferred by conditions which allow them to become classic motifs. Life 
Uh, finds a way. I suddenly had this feeling that everything was connected. Anything or everything could seem like the result of an undirected and incidental string of random chance accidents, right? Or is it? We have not come here by chance. I do not believe in chance. Theistic evolutionists understand that many drugs and medicines are being discovered or derived according to our growing understanding of the effects of evolutionary principles in biology. Yet in any life-saving operation, even when they know the natural explanation is the right one, believers still credit God over the skilled surgeons using state-of-the-art equipment and the advantages of cutting-edge medical breakthroughs. So it doesn't matter how seemingly disconnected or coincidental any series of occurrences may be, those who believe in destiny will still suggest otherwise. I do not see coincidence. I see providence. There are no coincidences, Delia. Only the illusion of coincidence. Most Christians would say that evolution is one of God's creative methods. But creationists reject that possibility outright because the issue for them is not whether their God is true, but whether their dogma is true. It can't be in any case, even if current concepts of evolution were proven wrong tomorrow. Biblical creationism still couldn't be true either because it has already been disproved many times, many ways, and collapses under its own lack of merit. But of course, believers can never admit that. Denial is the most predictable of all human responses. Many people, not just creationists, but most people, in fact, feel that if reality is not manipulated in mysterious ways for our benefit, then life is without purpose. And since creationists think evolution most directly disproves the purpose they choose to believe in, then they say that evolution must be without design, by design, simply because it is natural. Of course, if there is such a thing as supernatural providence, then all these seemingly undirected evolutionary advances were obviously destined to happen. I believe it is our fate to be here. It is our destiny. Mutations are genetic disorders that occur in the DNA in a random and unconscious manner, like all accidents that cause harm and destruction. The changes affected by mutations can only be like those experienced by people in Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Chernobyl, that is that disabled and freaks of nature. Evolutionists claim that these distortions cause organisms to evolve. However, scientific findings reject this claim because all observable efficient mutations cause only harm to living things. Creationists insist that mutations are very rare and usually, if not always, harmful. But the fact is that the vast majority of mutations are completely neutral. They'd have to be because according to the National Center for Biotechnology Information, there is an overall average of 128 mutations per human zygote. So apparently, in creationist terms, very rare means more than 100 per person right from the point of conception. Because those are just the mutations we start out with. Our cells will mutate again 30 more times over the course of our lives, and some of those subsequent mutations can be passed on to our children too, usually with no more effect than those we recognize as family traits. It's hard to find one rigid set of numbers from any laboratory for a constant rate of how many mutations are beneficial versus those that are detrimental because those are determined by variable environmental conditions. But there is a general consensus that they're nearly equal with deleterious mutations being slightly more common. They're also more profound, too. But there are plenty of cases where a definite advantage has been identified and positively linked to a specific mutation. All mutations that take place in humans result in mental or in physical deformities such as albinism, mongolism, dwarfism, or diseases such as cancer. 
that's not quite right. For example, kinfolk in the village of Lamun Salgarda in northern Italy have a mutation which gives them higher tolerance to HDL serum cholesterol. Consequently, this family has no history of heart attacks despite their high-risk dietary habits. This mutation was traced to a single common ancestor living in the 1700s, but has now spread to dozens of descendants. Genetic samples from this family are now being tested for potential treatment for patients of heart disease. Another example of new variants is the glycophorin-A somatic cell mutation, which has been identified in some Tibetans, which allows them to endure prolonged periods at altitudes over 7,000 feet without succumbing to apoplexia, or altitude sickness. A different but similar mutation was identified in the high-altitude natives of the Andes. Another example of that is the CCR5 Delta-32 mutation. About 10% of whites of European origin now carry it, but the incidence is only 2% in Central Asia, and it is completely absent among East Asians, Africans, and tribal Americans. It appears to have suddenly become relatively common among white Europeans about 700 years ago, evidently as a result of the Black Plague, indicating another example of natural selection allowing one gene dominance in a changing environment. It is harmless or neutral in every respect other than its one clearly beneficial feature. According to ScienceFrontiers.com, if one inherits this gene from both parents, they will be especially resistant, if not immune, to AIDS. Similarly, population genetics is being credited as one reason incidence of sickle cell genes in African Americans is apparently decreasing over time. For another example, we've identified an emerging population of tetrachromatic women who can see a bit of the normally invisible ultraviolet spectrum. There's also a family in Germany who were already unusually strong, but in one case, one of their children was born with a double copy of an antimyostatin mutation carried by both parents. The result is a Herculean kiddo who was examined at only four days old for his unusually well-developed muscles. By four years old, he had twice the muscle mass of normal children and half the fat. Pharmaceutical synthesis of this mutation is being examined for potential use against muscular dystrophy or sarcopenia. And then there's a family in Connecticut who've been identified as having hyperdense, virtually unbreakable bones. A team of doctors at Yale traced the mutation to a gene that was the subject of an earlier study. In that study, researchers showed that a low bone density could be caused by a mutation that disrupts the function of a gene called LRP5. This clued them that a different mutation increased LRP5 function, leading to the opposite phenotype, that is, high bone density. According to their investigators, members of this family have bones so strong they rival those of the character in the Bruce Willis movie Unbreakable. All of these are examples of specifically identified mutations which are definitely beneficial and which have spread through the subsequent gene pool according to natural selection. This is one of many indisputable proofs of evolution in humans, but we've identified beneficial mutations in many other species too. Another reason why it is impossible for mutations cause living things to evolve is that mutations do not add any new genetic information to an organism. Mutations cause existing genetic information to be randomly reshuffled, similar to playing cards. In other words, no new genetic information is introduced by mutations. The evolution of life is analogous to the evolution of language. For example, there are several languages based on the Roman alphabet of only 26 letters. Yet by arranging these in different orders, we've added several hundred thousand words to English since the 5th century, and many of them were completely new. The principle is the same in genetics. There are millions of named and classified species of life, all of them based on a variable arrangement of only four chemical components. For another example, we know that Spanish, Italian, French, and Portuguese all evolved from Latin, a vernacular which is now extinct. Each of these newer tongues emerged via a slow accumulation of their own unique slang lingo, thus diverging into new dialects and eventually distinct forms of gibberish, such that the new Romans could no longer communicate with either Parisians or Spaniards. 
Similarly, if we took an original Latin-speaking population and divided them, sequestered in complete isolation over several centuries, they might still be able to understand each other, or their jargon may have become unintelligible to foreigners. But they aren't going to start speaking Italian or Romanian because identical vocabularies aren't going to occur twice. It works the same way in biology. Mutations are degrees of variation which are usually quite subtle but cumulative, normally harmless, and occasionally advantageous. Any change in information is different information, not already present, and therefore can only be considered new. But of the many types of mutations known to occur, there are additions and duplications as well as deletions and the rest. So yes, genetic material can be added or taken away. But as to whether information has been added as opposed to lost, we can't really tell, because creationists won't tell us what they think information is or how to measure it. They'll readily state, as if it had somehow already been confirmed, that it takes more information to make a bird than it does a dinosaur. But if you ask them how much more, they'll shut right up. And if you demand to see the data that justifies how they could even make that claim in the first place, they'll change the subject. While the very simple structure bacterium comprises 2,000 different types of proteins. A human's organism has 100 types of proteins. Exactly, 98,000 new proteins have to be discovered for a bacterium to evolve into a human being. Actually, we have about 250,000 proteins being coded by 25,000 different genes. But you know what? A grain of rice actually has 40 to 50,000 genes. Can you imagine a little grain of rice has 50,000 genes and we have 25? What's up with that? Hi, my name's Crystal. I graduated from Texas A&M University with a degree in agricultural leadership and development with emphasis in genetics and biochemistry. I also researched in several labs on campus in genetics. Now, when scientists first started to study genetics and the human genome, we actually expected to find three times more the number of genes than we actually found. The 20 to 25,000 genes that we did find is only about twice the number that a roundworm has. And in fact, there's a variety of an amoeba that has 200 times the number of genes that a human being has. A pufferfish has hmm, approximately 21,000 genes. The pufferfish, isn't it adorable? actually has no junk DNA, which is interesting because humans are actually made up of 95% junk DNA. Well, one thing that researchers are particularly interested in is finding out what is junk DNA and does it actually do anything? One recent study suggests that it really doesn't. Researchers took 2.3 million letters of DNA out of a mouse and compared it to a mouse with full-length version of DNA and found out that there are no differences whatsoever. Natural selection weeds out detrimental mutations and selects for beneficial mutations, but the neutral ones, having neither cost nor ill effect, may freely accumulate as junk. These mutations, though seemingly random, can be interpreted as occurring at a more regular rate when examined over a span of many generations. The relatively fast mutation rate of mitochondrial DNA provides further confirmation of the extensive periods of time in an organism's matrilineal history. DNA can also help us establish genealogy precisely because it contains a sort of record of inherited mutations which can be compared and matched to more distant relatives. Just like a court-ordered paternity test can positively identify your immediate lineage, a more in-depth genomic sequence analysis can also determine more distant ancestry, and the more in-depth it is, the further it can trace, even when it pairs different species of one genus or different genera of one taxonomic family, collective families of one order, and so on. 
Judgments of law are based on a preponderance of evidence, and genetic evidence is so reliable it can get a life or death sentence even without need of other types of evidence to corroborate it. So the unique fingerprints of mutation and molecular phylogeny are not only profound evidence of evolution, they amount to legal proof of it.